morning. Uh, the word of the Lord comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. And the Apostle Paul writes these words. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one is justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, certainly not. For if, we, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Um, I love the way that every new Sunday we're coming up with a new greeting. It's very creative. Um, this, the bro thing is, is probably a little bit better than the, for me personally. <laughs> so thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited as we continue to uh, look at Galatians uh, this morning and just looking at um, this gospel message that we've been given and how it plays out in our lives as believers. And so uh, before we go into the text more and just uh, talk about this, I'm going to ask you to uh, please join me in a word of prayer. And so let's uh, go to the Lord and pray. Father, uh, we stand before you, and we're so thankful, God, that we can um, stand before you because of your grace and mercy in our life through your son, Jesus. God, uh, we are thankful that uh, you are a holy, majestic uh, God of the universe who created us, and uh, though we are uh, sinful and weak, that, Lord, you've given us mercy. And, Lord, I pray that this gospel uh, would continue to be the center of our hearts, would enable us to live uh, lives that are pleasing to you, to live in this newness of life that you've called us to by the power of the Holy Spirit and through uh, the clear teaching of your word. I pray that as we um, look into your word, which we're so thankful for, that reveals who you are, that reveals the wisdom of salvation, 
that reveals the way to you, to honor you. Uh, God, would you just really enlighten our hearts um, with the truth of your word, and would you enable this gospel to be uh, the power that continues to transform us? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, when I was studying in China and I was uh, studying Mandarin at the uh, local university, uh, there's a couple of observations I noticed. And um, there were actually some students there at the university who had been studying there for formal degree programs. And some of them actually had been studying there for a number of years uh, beyond just the normal two year, even like three, four, five years. And they're getting a master's degree. Uh, if you were to you know, give them what's called an HSK test, which is basically an exam that uh, measures your Chinese proficiency level. Uh, many of them could pass the HSK at a fairly high level, um, like level three, four, five, you know, even six maybe. Um, they knew the grammar, the words, the structures, and all that. But what I found that was pretty ironic and fascinating was that if you engage them in conversation, that they oftentimes kind of really just stumbled through their conversation and they didn't know how to uh, adeptly and fluently use the grammar and the words and didn't just come out very smoothly, uh, just in normal everyday communication. Uh, but I can't blame them, to be honest with you, even for myself, I found that, and I shared this with some of you, that uh, when I was in China, that um, I could spend several hours lecturing in Chinese in systematic and biblical theology, believe it or not, but if you ask me to order a restaurant, forget it. And if you ask me to converse with these young people who are using all kinds of slang, forget it. I was just completely out of it. I'm all, what? Like, like I don't understand what you're saying. And uh, I was somewhat of, you can say, kind of an idiot savant, all right? So this proficiency when it comes to very technical language, but in real kind of functional usage, just it wasn't there. And it kind of reminds me a little bit that I think oftentimes it is easy, sometimes for us as Christians, as believers, to know a lot of things about the Bible, uh, to know a lot of maybe technical things about Scripture, and yet lose sight of really the main thing. What is really, really important? What is central to us as Christians, as followers of Jesus? And in this passage, I want to just talk about uh, really how we as Christians, we need the gospel. And talk about the centrality of the gospel, the ongoing need for us as Christians. That not only um, that we as Christians, the believers, need the gospel as much as unbelievers do. Because the gospel is the power of God to continue to transform us and to give us his power to live. And I want to talk about three main things out of this passage. So the first thing is gospel centrality. The second thing is gospel motivation, and the third thing is gospel living. So gospel centrality, gospel motivation, and gospel living. Uh, the first thing I want to just talk about is gospel centrality that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 2. So let's look at verses 11 to 13 again. Uh, please join me in looking at the, this passage. Paul says, when, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Um, this is an interesting scene here because here you have two of the most prominent Christian leaders, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, Paul being this younger believer in the Lord, Peter being this pillar, this uh, very influential apostle, one of the, the most influential, and this younger believer, Paul, co confronts Peter publicly and rebukes him. And you can imagine this tension that fills the air that's going on. These two big, big, big leaders, right? And what's the issue here? Peter, as Paul would point out, um, Peter had been eating with these Gentile Christians. And these Gentile Christians formerly were despised or were looked down upon by the Jews because the Jewish people in their Old Testament law had these very, very elaborate set of regulations that if you violated any of these regulations that you were considered to be unclean, unfit, unacceptable to be worshiping God in the temple in his presence. And so these regulations included certain foods that you had to abstain from, um, any kind of disease, if, you t if someone with a disease touched you, any of that, you were considered unclean at that point and unqualified to come before God in his presence. And so, of course, the Gentiles were completely disqualified. But when Peter met Christ, he understood the gospel. And he knew that we are all sinners, that everyone really is unclean. The law was not meant to say, well, these, this group of people are really clean and righteous, and this group is unclean. But through the law, he came to realize, well, I'm unclean as well, and only Christ himself can make me clean and can make me righteous. And so this revelation of the gospel... Um, revolutionized the way he related to the Gentiles. He had a vision in Acts chapter 10 of seeing all these unclean animals and the Lord tells him, go ahead and eat. And so the result of this, the gospel was this beautiful picture of unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christians eating at the same table, this fellowship together uh, that, you know, previously they were, they were separated. But then suddenly this Fellowship is disrupted, interrupted. Why? Because the texts tell us that there were certain men from James. And uh, presumably this is the Apostle James. And they encouraged the Jewish Christians to separate from the Gentile believers. And Peter just went along with this circumcision group and withdrew from fellowship with the Gentile believers. It, but by doing that, he led a whole cadre, a whole group of Jewish believers to follow suit, including Barnabas, one of the other key leaders in the church. Now, as we read this text, we kind of think, okay, well, you know, what's, what's the big deal, right? Like, is it really that, that big or significant of an issue? And you can kind of imagine uh, modern day, like, let's just say that you had a former leader of ISIS, right? And um, this former leader of ISIS turns to Christ, and he is able then to fellowship with, let's say, an American, right? a Westerner. And you just think, wow, this is amazing. They're eating at the same table. They're laughing together. They're enjoying good company and all of that. 
And then all of a sudden, this former ISIS leader, you know, says, you know, sorry, I can't eat with you anymore. And if you're going, if I'm going to eat with you, you have to adopt the Muslim customs and um, you know, dress and regulations and all that, right? And it had tremendous implications. Well, Paul is incensed, and he calls Peter out publicly. In verse 14, notice what Paul says. He says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Um, Paul calls him out, and what's interesting, going back to actually verse 13, is that when Paul calls Peter, he doesn't just merely call him a coward. You know, how could you be so afraid? Actually, he uses this really strong term. He says, how could you be so hypocritical? It's hypocrisy. Um, Paul could have used a number of ways to call out Peter's sin. And he could have called Peter's sin out as you're being nationalistic, you're, you're being kind of racist, prideful, self-righteous, arrogant. He could have used a number of ways to describe Peter's sin. And he could have said, you know, you're failing to live like a Christian should, so to speak. But notice that the way that Paul calls out Peter's hypocrisy or sin is he says that you are not living or you are not keeping step with the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. At the heart of Peter's sin was a failure to censor himself on the gospel and then to live out the implications of this gospel. This is the heart of it. A lot of times when we think about sin, we think about it in terms of rebelling against God, violating, breaking God's law, breaking his word. And certainly that is sin. But sin is also the fact that we don't live out the true implications of this gospel that's been given to us. And Paul uses this term, strong term, hypocrisy, to describe it. There's another thing that I want you to see about this, and that is that Peter, if he is this long-standing, established, reputable apostle, and he could drift and he could divert himself away from the gospel, then so can you and I. It doesn't matter how long we've been Christians, and it doesn't matter how mature, immature you may be in your faith as a believer, um, it is easy to drift away from the gospel, to lose its centrality in our lives. It's very, we have to be very, very intentional day after day to think through what is the gospel and how does this actually work itself out in my life, in our world, in our church. Well, verses 15 to 18, uh, Paul is going to get at Peter's sin, but he's going to do it in such a way that we don't normally think. Rather than just simply addressing Peter's behavior and saying, hey, look, Go back and start eating with the Gentile Christians again. You know, start having this table fellowship. 
the way that Paul deals with it is by reminding Peter of the gospel. So look at verses 15 to 16. This is gospel motivation. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, earlier in chapter 1, the way that Paul describes the gospel is he describes it as grace. He describes it as deliverance from this present evil age. But now he introduces a new way to talk about the gospel. He describes, he uses the word justification to describe the essence of the gospel. Um, this word justification, to be justified, was a Roman legal court term. And Paul is bar borrowing this terminology to describe God as a judge who is holy. And he is full of majesty. He is uncompromising. He has given his law, but all of us are lawbreakers. We have violated God's word, all of us. And so before God, we would be standing guilty. We would be unholy. And yet... Despite that, through the work of Jesus, Paul, or God, he declares us to be righteous, to be justified. Now, this is the essence of the gospel. If you and I obeyed the law perfectly, we would be declared righteous by God. But the problem is none of us can do it. We're all lawbreakers. And so, how do we... How do we become accepted before God? Justification by faith. To be declared righteous by faith in Christ. And where is Paul getting this? He is getting this from Jesus himself. Through his life, his death, his resurrection, from what Jesus himself taught, um, as you know, the Pharisees tried to justify themselves, but... Uh, sinners who came before God, who um, knew their guilt before God as they called out to God for mercy, that they were declared righteous, that they were justified. This is the key doctrine for us as Christians and for the church. Martin Luther, in the Protestant Reformation, he's, he would describe this doctrine as the key truth upon which Christianity stands or falls. Justification by faith. Everything stands or falls on this one truth. And God does not justify good people. He only justifies sin sinful people who recognize their need for grace. This is the heart of this gospel. Now, Verse 17, Paul goes on, he says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? In other words, does this mean 
that just because we are justified completely by grace in Christ, does this mean that you can just live however you want? You can just sin. I'm accepted by grace. If you're accepted by grace, then if you talk about this, it would encourage people to sin, right? If Christ justifies bad people, then why live righteously? This is kind of the objection that comes up to people's minds. And for some people, this message is very dangerous because it's almost like saying you're letting people off the hook too easily. What we need is more threats, more warnings, rules, challenges. Otherwise, people will take advantage of this grace to justify their own sin. And what Paul says here is certainly not. Certainly not. But look how Paul talks about this. He says in verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, this is a little bit obscure. If I rebuild what I tore down, what was Paul tearing down? He was tearing down this using the law as a system of works to justify himself as a way to save himself. In other words, Paul found that he no longer needed to be saved by the law. It was impossible to keep the burden of the law to base his acceptance before God. And Paul says ironically in verse 18, if I try to rebuild the system of the law and try to gain my acceptance before God through the law, I'm actually going to show, the law will show that I am guilty, that I am a transgressor. And in verse 19, he says, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul, when he was justified by faith in Christ, he discovered that rather than just living however he wanted, he actually found this new freedom to live for God. It fundamentally changed his heart structure in such a way so that he was no longer living for himself, but living for God, God in his glory, for his sake. And until you have experienced the grace of God in the gospel, you are actually living for yourself. You could be very devoted, religiously, morally. You could be keeping the rules very, very well, but your motivation is either fear, self-preservation, or guilt. It always goes back to yourself as to why you do those things. And you've not really loved God for God, but you've only used God for your own benefit, for your own sake. This is, in a sense, what Paul is talking about here. And not until we have died to the law as a way to earn our acceptance have we learned to really love God, to live for God. I want to share with you um, an example This was from one of the ladies who was part of a class that I had taught 
back in China, and we were talking about the gospel, we are talking about the implications of this, and she wrote me this email. And she said, for a long time, I was troubled by the sins and evil thoughts that I had. Now, if you were to look at this lady, just on the outside, you know, she's very devoted, um, you know, very, very consistent, very, quote, faithful, as you would see her. I mean, very nice, very kind, uh, very devoted to her church and everything. And she says, for a long time, I was troubled by the sins and evil thoughts I had. I was frightened by some of them. I prefer I were dead instead of having those evil thoughts. I doubted my salvation. I invited Jesus into my heart over and over again, hoping for my life to be changed. I even thought maybe I was not God's chosen, chosen one, since my life didn't change at all. It was a long, dark time. And I didn't understand God's love. Now I choose to believe in God's word. It says, God so loved the world. It's true, and the world includes me. When the fleeting thoughts come, I admit I'm such a bad sinner, but I turn to Jesus. It's he who made salvation for me, denied himself and saved me and loves me always. I was saved through the righteousness of Christ. And I learned to surrender to Jesus. And this particular woman, this particular lady, rather than actually being enslaved or rather than delving into a deeper lifestyle of license or of sin, this gospel began to free her more and more to genuinely love God and to want to serve God for his sake. The gospel gradually worked to free her from insecurity, from the wrong kinds of fear. And this freed her so that she could be free to, as Paul says, come alive to God. William Romaine, who is one of the leaders of the 18th century revival in England, he put it this way, but he says, no sin can be crucified either in heart or life unless it first be pardoned in conscience. If it not be mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. What William Romaine was suggesting or what he was saying was not that the gospel of God's grace becomes an excuse for sin, but what he was saying was that the path to genuine freedom from sin was first, you must believe this gospel to be true in your heart, to be pardoned of your guilt and your conscience. Um, that this gospel, the, the freer this grace, actually the freer it is for you to live for God. And so the first thing that Paul gets at, even in Peter, and and talking about his real heart issue is to restructure your heart DNA. The motivation, the fundamental motivations of the heart in such a way so that it gives freedom. But look at verses 20 through 21. And this is where we talk about gospel living. Gospel living. Paul 
in verse 20, says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, what is Paul getting at in this verse? It is true that some people may abuse God's grace. And some people may try to use God's grace as an excuse for sin. There is always that danger. And they use it for the wrong kind of freedom. Paul's going to talk about freedom later on in Galatians 5, where we have the freedom to actually serve Christ, to love people. But here, it's true that some people can abuse or use this freedom the wrong way. So what does Paul do in verses 20 through 21? Notice that Paul doesn't hammer them with the law. He doesn't say, well, okay, for those of you who, are, who might be tempted to abuse this grace, let me balance it out with some law. That's not how he, how he appeals to the gospel. Rather, what he does is he appeals to your union with Christ himself. Union with Christ. Um, this is really the essence, right, just these verses right here is the essence of Paul's teaching in Romans 3 to 6. Three or four chapters of Paul's writing distilled right here. What he says is that you and I have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And not only have we been given a new freedom or a new motive, but Paul is saying you and I have been given a new power to live in genuine obedience to God. Romans 6, 1 through 4, Paul uses the same illustration. He uses the illustration baptism to say that we have died to sin. We have died with Christ to sin, and we have become alive to righteousness through the newness of life that's been given to us in him. Paul, let me just break this down, uh, these phrases here. But he says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, the death that Christ died to sin, I also died to sin. Christ died to sin so that we might live in holiness, in righteousness. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That when you trust not in yourself, not in your goodness, not in your morality or your efforts, but when you put your trust in Christ, in his grace, it's his enabling presence that gives you that power to live. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I still have this flesh. I still have this body, this body of sin and weakness. There's temptations. We face all kinds of temptations and weaknesses in this world, in this life. It doesn't just magically disappear when you come to Christ. But Paul's confidence was that he would constantly look away 
away from himself unto Jesus, constantly looking to Christ. And when God sees you and I, though we still have our weaknesses, that he sees the beauty, the righteousness of Christ in you. This is what enables us to live our lives for God. And through this union with Christ, in his death and resurrection, um, I am given this presence, the presence of Jesus. Um, this is a tremendous truth. And there are some who feel like, you know what, sin is just so powerful, it's so strong, it's, it's unbreakable, but that's not true either. You've been given Christ. And what's true is that out of your union with Christ, that Christ has broken its power. The tyranny of sin no longer has to rule and reign. All of this is by God's grace. In verse 21, Paul says, he concludes it this way, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Uh, he just brings it back and says, it's all by God's grace. Dr. Roger Nicole shares this story to kind of illustrate this. And he says, if your house was burning down with your whole family, but your whole family escaped, and I came to you, and I said, let me show you how much I loved you, and then I ran into the house and died, what would you think? You would think, what an idiot, right? <laughs> what did he do that for? But what if one of your children were still in the house as this house is burning down? And I said, let me show you how much I love you. He ran into the house, into this fiery house, saved your child, but he himself died. What would you say then? You'd say, wow, amazing how much he loved me, how he loved us, he saved us. And he goes on to say, now, if you can save yourself by works, Jesus' death is not loving. It's really foolish that Jesus would have to die on the cross. Like, why would he do that? It makes no sense. It's pure stupidity. If, however, you are lost and dying and unable to save yourself, his death means everything. And this is the fundamental motivation that enables us to live our life for God. And it's a costly grace. This grace is given to you and I for free, but it costs God his own son, Jesus. Following Jesus is difficult. It requires your whole life. It's costly. But the reason why we are enabled to follow Jesus, even when it's very difficult, is because of the costly grace of God in our own life. Jesus' death on our behalf, the costliness of this grace, is what enables us day by day to say, Lord, let me deny myself, take up my cross daily, and follow you. 
This is the only power and motivation that can enable us to truly live in such a way that is self-sacrificing for God's glory. Going back to Peter and his sin of hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is a gap between your stated values versus how you actually live. Why is it that we have a hard time uh, forgiving people? Why do we hold grudges to certain people? Right? We know it's wrong. But it's wrong not only because it goes against God's law, God's word, it's wrong because we've been given the gospel. And actually, it's a complete disconnect from this gospel of grace that we've been given. So how does Paul deal with this issue? He dealt with it by addressing the real heart issues of fear, people-pleasing, self-centeredness, living to please yourself by using the gospel. Only the gospel works deeply enough to give us a fundamentally new heart structure, identity, and power to live for God. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Please join me. Father, um, we are thankful for this gospel that we've been given, and Lord, I pray that this gospel would become real to our hearts in such a way so that the way that we live our lives, what we say that we value, and the way that we actually live in the day-to-day, that you would be closing this gap. God, uh, that you would apply uh, this gospel to the underlying heart issues in our own lives, what it means to rest our hearts completely on the work of Christ, his work on our behalf, and to live out of this union that we've been given with him. We thank you for the preciousness of this gospel truth, and Lord, would you continue to transform us, our hearts, and our church for your glory. Amen.